Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're close to wrapping up our series in the book of Romans, Getting It Right with God, and I've entitled our message, PBR, Skull, and the Macarena. Unfortunately, since some of you are a little oversaved, you have no idea what that actually means. PBR means Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, brewed about uh, probably an hour from where I grew up back then. Skull is tobacco, and the Macarena is a dance. All right. Many years ago, our family was given a week in a condo at a Christian camp it was during those wonderful years when your kids are, are growing up and you're not too worried about them yet, sort of those golden years. And so we went to this Christian camp, I believe it was Maranatha Camp in Michigan, right along Lake Michigan. It was beautiful. We weren't in the camp program, but the condos were sort of part of the camp development, so uh, there was a lot of housing there that was owned by people outside of the camp. They probably had to have a certain you know, profession of agreement with the camp's doctrine and so on, but so people would come and stay in the condos that weren't a part of the camp program for the week, but you used the camp facilities, and they had lovely facilities. They had a great pool, there were tables and umbrellas and everything was there. So here come the brush obbers to the pool. All of the girls had one-piece suits or the Jesus swimsuit for women, the tankini. You don't know what a tankini is. All right, clearly this is an uneducated group. Okay, the tankini is sort of uh, for really conservative people who feel like I don't want my daughter wearing a bikini. You sort of extend it and have a lot more material here and a lot more material here. I was a big fan of that as a father of three daughters, I must admit. But the, the camp rules would not allow bikinis, so girls had to have one pieces or tankinis. And along with the brush obbers to the swim pool came a deck of cards and a bunch of rolls of poker chips. Incidentally, I was arrested that day by camp counselors, served two years in a minimum security Baptist facility. But we had a lot of fun. My kids know how to play poker. And the reason they know how to play poker is they were taught by their dad, their pastor, who learned in seminary or soon thereafter. Now, I would suspect at that camp a few of those families around the pool had some questions about our Christian standards and probably would have been surprised to know I was a pastor. See, things like card playing or uh, minor gambling in a situation like that are, are very controversial among Christians. My family of origin did not play cards. They would have said it was a sin. And my parents told me that playing cards had some deeper meaning and so I finally tracked it down online because I couldn't find where this came from and Google is just a wonderful invention and so I started Googling different things and I finally tracked down where the belief system came from that caused my family, the brush obbers, to believe that playing cards was a sin. And so I found this article by a man named J.D. Carlson. It's a little bit like the King James English. This was written a long time ago. But I want to show you where this belief came from. And today we're going to talk about these things that, that are kind of questionable things in the Christian community. You know, what should our view of alcohol be? What should our view of tobacco be? What should our view of pot be, now that it's legal? Things we disagree on. 
The church in days gone by, this is from G. Day Carlson, the church in days gone by took its stand against the card game. Ministers preached against it, not this one, and big bonfires were built as people burned their playing cards. Dr. Talmadge, as great a minister as ever served in the Presbyterian denomination, said he would rather have his children play with a nest of rattlesnakes than with a deck of cards. Of course, this was years ago. Today and for many years, the church and the pulpit have been silent in speaking against card playing. This is interesting. The first deck of cards was invented by King Charles of France in the year 1392. Incidentally, King Charles was an insane man, according to him. Don't know if that's true. Now, you perhaps have never heard this, so notice carefully what I'm going to say. A deck of cards used to be called the Devil's Bible. And in the 17th century, it was called the Devil's Picture Book. This is very important for us to know. Each card in the deck has a special meaning. Men who know me or, or tell me this, uh, who know, tell me this is true. The cards have a secret language. Here is what I mean. Now, this is just, this is just, to me, this is funny. I realize some of you probably actually might believe this. The king card represents the prince of darkness or the devil. The ten spot speaks of the spirit of lawlessness. It speaks in opposition to the moral law as found in the Ten Commandments in the Bible. The club represents violence and murder. The jack speaks of the loose living man, the lustful man, etc. The queen card represents Mary, mother of Jesus. In the language of the cards, however, Mary is represented as an impure, dissolute, immoral woman. There is the joker. He represents Jesus Christ. But also the climax of all that is diabolical in connection with the language of cards is this. Jesus Christ, the joker, is said to be the child, the offspring of the licentious jack and the queen. I wish I didn't have to tell you this. It is so vile, so dreadful in its implication that every man and woman who loves and adores the Savior who died to redeem us with his own blood must cry out in protest against such blasphemy. So every card in the deck has a secret meaning, and all alike are teaching opposition to God and his sacred word. After what has been said about the jack, the queen, and the joker, there's no need of further exposure to the card language. Wow. Well, that settles it, right? Go home and burn your cards. So whoever invented Rook and other non-traditional card games made a fortune off of this guy's view. So I grew up playing Rook. Everyone, does anyone know what Rook is? Okay, thank you. Oh, yeah, some of your parents told you this too. Okay. So we grew up playing Rook because we couldn't have these face cards. In fact, the people who invented Rook probably spread this rumor to sell more Rook and Uno cards. Christians disagree on a lot of issues that are not expressly addressed in Scripture. Now, keep in mind I'm talking about the things that are not expressly addressed in Scripture. Music styles. Dancing. Now, if I dance, it is a sin. But if you saw me dance, you'd understand why. Dancing. My wife just about had a dance minor from a Big Ten school. I had a daughter in ballet. I had another daughter in dance. Celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Did you know that early Christians in the early church celebrated Christmas on December 25th to compete with a pagan holiday that took place on December 25th? Did you know that? It has nothing to do with when Jesus was born. It's got an absolute pagan origin. So they tried to Christianize it. Halloween. Well, that one even gets the conservatives among us, like me, a little more concerned because obviously there's some origin of evil sort of stuff, but we didn't keep our kids from trick-or-treating. We didn't let them dress up like the devil either. Alcohol. I grew up in a family where drinking anything was a sin. 
I just about got kicked out of Bible college for disagreeing with that position, even though I never drank at that point in my life at all. I just disagreed with the school's position because it went way beyond God's position. Tobacco, pot, now that it's legal. Physical boundaries and dating, how far is too far? Gambling, lottery tickets. Is it okay if you're gambling just a little bit? Uh, if you go to a dog race or the horse race and you make $2 bets and you really don't have a problem with gambling, is that okay at all? In other words, is moderation okay in an area like that, even though some people lose their houses gambling? Bikinis versus tankinis versus the one piece. Acceptable Christian cursing. That one's an interesting one. You know, what do you say when you hit your thumb with the hammer? Because I guarantee you, Christians do differ on this one. There's a very good chance that your family or your church took a stand on some of these issues. My concern is if you come from a background where they took a stand on all of these issues, that's problematic. The problem is we have often made black and white what God actually calls gray. And some of us don't like gray. From a personality standpoint or for whatever reason, we just want our church or our, our family to have a clear set of rules in every area of life so we can just really be careful to never do the wrong thing. But even the Bible isn't that specific about everything. I want to read Romans chapter 14. It addresses this issue, and I want to read beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. He who is weak eats vegetables only. Now there's a cultural religious background to that, which I'll explain in a few moments. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt. The one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God." For not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put any obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is to, or to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Don't destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's a few principles in here, and there's a lot there. There's a couple of cultural issues in the first century I'm going to have to explain. 
But I'm going to begin by making this general point. A portion of Christian ethics are not universal, but rather are individualistic. A portion of Christian ethics are not universal, but rather are individualistic. In other words, some things might be wrong for another person, but not wrong for you. Some things might be wrong for you, but not another person. That's what Paul is talking about here. In verse 2, he says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So he's talking about a couple of things back then that were right for some people and wrong for others. Now, I want to make this very, very clear. This does not mean that all of our behavioral standards are up in the air. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying the Ten Commandments are the Ten Suggestions. It's not his point at all here. But Paul is writing at a unique time in Christian history. Romans, this book, is about becoming righteous, right with God. Paul talks in earlier chapters about how we became right with God through what Jesus did for us. We're positionally right with God. We've been declared righteous. Now he's in the section where he talks about how we become behaviorally right with God, practically right with God. We're doing the right things. And earlier, Paul established that the law, or God's rule book, had a problem. So Paul is talking about the Old Testament, and he's saying the Old Testament actually has a problem. It's true. It's good, but it doesn't make us behave. He said, in fact, laws, by their very nature, create sin. They create temptation. When you're a kid, your parents tell you to do something or not to do something, there's an automatic temptation to cross the line. There's no violating the speed limit if there wasn't a 50 or 60 or 100 mile an hour sign, or kilometers per hour, I apologize. And I'm working on foyer. Anyway. The reality is that laws create sin, and Paul talks about that dynamic. By their very nature, they create sin, because without any laws, there wouldn't be any rules, therefore you're not crossing the boundary. So the law doesn't fix us, it rather shows us that we're broken, so we know that we need a savior. Now Paul then said after that, the good news is that in our union with Christ, as Steve talked about when he was explaining baptism, our union with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, something also happened there as well with the law. It ended our connection to the law. And replacing the law is God's spirit in our lives. We're not under the Old Testament code. We're not We're not Jewish in the New Testament. The Old Testament code was a covenant or a treaty between God and Israel. Paul says we're not under that, although basic guidelines like the uh, the Ten Commandments, they're basically repeated with the works of the Spirit and the the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh. They're basically repeated in the New Testament, the basic moral code, but there are a lot of issues left unclear. One of those issues was, you know, meat was talked about here. So what's going on? Why is Paul talking about eating meat? Here's why Paul's talking about it. He could be talking about the kosher laws that no longer applied. So you've got a Jewish and a Gentile church mixed together, and you have the first potluck, and the little Jewish children are coming up to the potluck, and they see those little pork weenies, you know, 
And they're like, Mom, that looks so good. And they reach for the little pork weenies. The mom slaps their hands. And the little Gentile kids are grabbing the pork weenies. And they're doing great. And they're also grabbing the other stuff wrapped in bacon. And it smells great. The Gentile kids are eating it. The Jewish kids reach their hands out their mouth. No, no, you can't touch that. So it might have to do with this issue of the kosher laws no longer being in effect, but Jews still not being comfortable violating them. It also could be, and we know this is described elsewhere in the New Testament, that many people in the Roman church and in the early church had come out of pagan cultures. And most of the meat sold in the marketplace was first offered as a sacrifice to a pagan deity before it makes it to the marketplace. So if you were a person who was a temple prostitute, male or female, a temple prostitute in a pagan temple, and now you're coming to the church potluck, and there was meat there that was offered to Diana, the goddess Diana, or something like that, you might say, we can't be eating this, this comes from my pagan background. So that was going on as well. Now Paul's view of that was, I really don't care. Paul's view is, I know there's only one God, I really don't care, a steak is a steak, I don't care where it's been sacrificed, where it's been altered, if it's a good ribeye, it's of God. That was Paul's view. It's in, it's in the Greek, it was Paul's view. A good ribeye is of God, whether it's been sacrificed to a pagan deity or not. So there's all these, this meat discussion that's going on in the background. You also could have had people there who were what's called ascetics. Now you can just forget that word after I say it. Ascetics believed in denying the body. And if you denied the body what the body wanted, that was somehow gonna make you more spiritual. Now what does the body want more than anything? A good steak, of course. So again, you've got these three issues. You could have the, the Jewish laws being set aside now because we're not under them. You could have the meat offered to idols. You could have the ascetics. But Paul is saying, we've got this controversy in the church about meat. He says there's also a controversy about sacred days. Some people grew up and they were going to synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, now the church isn't just Jewish, it's Gentile. And they celebrated what day? They celebrated Sunday morning. It was Resurrection Day. So you've got the Jews saying, hey, we should be going to church on Friday night or Saturday. They were into Saturday services before Christians were. We should be going to church on Friday night or Saturday. That's the Sabbath. What are you guys doing waiting till Sunday? So you got this major difference in the church because of their backgrounds. And some people believe they still needed to celebrate their Jewish festivals. Others would say it's not necessary anymore. We're not under the law. So people disagreed. All right? That's not new. People in the church disagreeing is not new, and it's not going away after this sermon. I suspect I'll create more of it as a result of this sermon. Paul mentions two groups. Now I'm gonna describe four groups that we know were in the early church, but I'm gonna first talk about the two Paul is mentioning because that's what the text brings out. He talks about the weak. Now the weak person is not a person who's been locked up for 15 months with COVID and can't get to their gym. That would be me. The weak person, it just opened the other day. I'm going there today. On a Sunday, I know, all right. The weak person, is a person whose conscience lacks freedom even where God allows him to do something, okay? The weak person is a person whose conscience lacks freedom even in an area where God would allow them to do something. They don't feel comfortable with it for some reason. Could be their background, their history, whatever. They are gonna be more conservative than God in a certain area. The strong person is a person whose conscience is fully informed by the scriptures 
and that person has the full exercise of their freedoms. They, they, they recognize what they can do and what they can't do. Their conscience is pretty well lined up with that. Now, another couple of people I have to mention, because these appear elsewhere in Scripture, and it's very important for this discussion, another one would be the legalist. The legalist in the New Testament was a person who believed that they were still under the Old Testament law. They believed the Old Testament still applied to every area of life. They wanted to put people under the food laws, under the sacred days laws, and frankly, they wanted Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be Christians because circumcision was Jewish. So imagine going to that membership class as the first Gentile Christians. All right. And then there's the libertine. So you got the weak, the strong, the legalist. And today the legalist is a person who wants a rule for everything. They want a code for everything. Leave no doubt, Pastor Paul. Tell us what to do in every area of life. And we'll either do it or we'll criticize you to our friends. That would be the legalist. I'm on a, there's a lot of comedy today. I'm not sure why. Might be my second COVID shot. This sermon was written on Pfizer. Anyway, so, and then finally you've got the libertine. The libertine is a person who believes that one could throw off all restraint, let your body do whatever it wants to do, but your soul can still be connected with God. And you'd say, why are we even talking about that? That's ridiculous. That actually is happening in Western Christianity a lot. This is the belief that I can have my devotions and be very close to Jesus right after I woke up next to my boyfriend or girlfriend that I'm not married to. And that my relationship with Jesus is not affected at all by that. I can separate those items. That is actually making a huge comeback in Western Christianity. So these last two, the legalist and the libertine, they're wrong, but the first two have real legitimate differences as a matter of conscience the weak and the strong, and both should be careful about judging others. A portion of Christian ethics are not universal, they're individualistic. That's what we're talking about. Second, rather than judge our differences or the people who have them, recognize that we all answer to God for our decisions. Now, Paul makes this point in multiple places. In verse 6, he makes this point, that whoever is doing something, whether it's eating meat or observing a special day, they're doing it because of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. And so Paul says, why are you going to judge your brother? Because that person's going to appear before God. Verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 6, verse 10, verse 12, the whole area is thematically making this point that rather than try to fix each other, and it doesn't mean we can't have a good debate about some stuff, but rather than try to fix each other, recognize at the end of the day, after our debate, you're gonna stand before God, and I'm gonna stand before God, and that's what's most important. Now, some of us have a hard time with this because we want a clear set of rules that apply to everybody. And, and most of Christianity's moral and, morals and ethics are clear. Most of the decisions that you make in your Christian life are pretty clear. The big ones are clear. God's pretty clear about ethics in pretty much every area of life, but not everywhere. There are these little things that the Bible doesn't really address. Now, I want to talk about a group of people in the New Testament that, that had a real hard time with this, and those were the Pharisees. And, and I grew up in a church that kind of would have mimicked them in some ways, and let me explain. The Pharisees believed that if everyone adopted a certain set of standards, 
that God would reestablish Israel on its land. So they believed we're sort of bringing back God's rule to Israel, which was a theocracy. God was the king. And if we all obey God, he's going to let us have our independence again. You know, our armies will expand our borders. We'll get the Old Testament back, basically. So the Pharisees took God's commands. The scribes probably did this, sort of the Old Testament lawyers. They took God's commands. They numbered 613 of them. They weren't worried about just the Big Ten. And by that, I don't mean the football conference. They weren't worried about just the Big Ten. They were worried about the 613. And so they searched the scriptures. They found 613 commands. And this is what they did. And this is kind of a a direct quote. They built a fence around the law. They built a fence around the law. Their view was, if we can take God's 613 commands, figure out every possible application of the 613, then nobody's going to sin. So they took those 613 commands and they, they kind of had discussions about them. That discussion became among the rabbis what was called an oral tradition. That oral tradition was written down, I believe, in the second century. It's called the Mishnah, okay? So the Mishnah. I'm going to throw a couple words at you. You can get, just forget after the sermon. I just want to show you that I know stuff about stuff. So you have the Mishnah. That's the oral tradition that's written down. And then the the rabbinic discussions that are in the Mishnah, I believe just the discussions by themselves are the Gemara. The combined books of the discussions, the rules, etc., are the Talmud. So basically the Pharisees have three Bibles. And they tried to keep them all. And they judged anybody who didn't. Now, a lot of us actually would prefer that Christianity was that way. You want rules about alcohol, you want rules about card playing, you want rules about dancing, you want rules about, can I buy a lottery ticket, can I not buy a lottery ticket? It's simpler that way for you. And and once you become convinced something's right or wrong, boy, you're out there ready to judge everyone else who doesn't agree with you. You like black and white. You like black and white for whatever reason. No gray. Gray is only a popular color for interior decorators. You don't want gray. But it doesn't work that way. See, I have a friend, good friend, who's a former alcoholic. And let's say we're at a wedding, and I'm there with my buddy. And, and I didn't really drink anything until I was in my 50s, and my kids were adults. We raised our kid in a completely alcohol-free home, our four kids. But once they got to be young adults and they were trying things, they'd go to a wedding, like, hey, Dad, taste this. And, and I would try things. And so I would say I'm a very, 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 very minor social drinker. So let's say I'm at a wedding with my buddy. And I have a free conscience. I don't even like alcohol. I mean, to me, it tastes like vinegar. I do not like it. Pepsi is way better. So we're at a wedding and, you know, there's champagne and they're toasting the bride and the groom and you know, and there's a champagne bottle at my table and I'm starting to pour it for everybody else and somebody's getting the pastor on film pouring champagne. You know, there's always that. It's going to make it to the church Facebook page. And I'm sitting next to my buddy and do I pour champagne for him or not? Well, he's in a very different place than me. On that issue, I've got a strong conscience. I don't care. I don't even like alcohol. But I drink a little of it. But for him, if he's been sober for a number of years, if he drinks that... Then he's going to maybe have a second one, and then he's going to stop somewhere on the way home, and I have set him on a cycle back into his past that's very different for me. See, not everything is black and white. 
For me, it's just not a big deal. For him, it could change his faith life. And Paul says the most important thing to remember here is we disagree on these things is we all answer to God, and that's enough to let us live with our differences. But there are a couple other principles Paul mentions. We still recognize and need to recognize, consider our impact on others, even where we have freedom. So number three, our freedom does have limits. Going back to that little wedding scenario, we should never drag a brother or a sister down. Talks about that in verses 13 to 16. He says, don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So if I'm sitting there with my buddy at that wedding and he's looking at me and he's thinking, Pastor Paul, you're having a glass of champagne and, and I'm an alcoholic, what I don't want to say to my friend is, dude, it's okay. I mean, the Bible doesn't forbid this. It says that elders should not be given too much wine. My Baptist background said, well, that was just grape juice. They couldn't explain that verse because they didn't believe you could drink at all. So elders can't be given too much wine. And they say the word oinos in the Greek actually can mean grape juice or wine, either one. So they're just saying elders in the New Testament were just drinking a lot of Welch's grape juice. Nobody could ever get drunk on it. They're just wrong. They're misrepresenting the scriptures. The reality is Alcohol in the New Testament, wine was, was made, it was, it was created in, during season, it was made into like a jelly paste, it was put in skins, and over time, it fermented, and when you mixed it back with water, it had an alcohol content, it just did. And you're not supposed to be given to much wine, meaning you don't mix it real thick, so you're intentionally getting drunk. So the reality is we, we can't take away the fact that some, some of these things actually go on, but I, I do need to be concerned about my brother and not say to him, hey, dude, this is fine. I, I'm a pastor. It, it's okay. Trust me. God doesn't have a problem with it because if I take him down that path, I can destroy his life. What we can do and what we should do sometimes do differ. Paul said a, a, a ribeye, eating a great ribeye, obviously makes us close to God. It's the best steak out there. And whether it was offered in the marketplace to a pagan deity or not, he said, I don't care. If I get it 50 cents off a pound or a kilogram at Costco, it doesn't matter. Just a better stewardship situation then. But I'm not going to invite into my small group a group of people who were temple prostitutes in the temple of Diana and have the meat package have Diana stamped on it. Because that will make them feel like there's no separation in their new life in Christ from their old life. So how we view our brothers and sisters and their background matters. And so he's saying our limitations in life have not just to do with what we can do, but how we're going to affect the people around us with our decisions. All right? Does that make sense? How are, here's the problem with that. All right? So Paul taught that, the other Paul. This Paul's going to say, there's a problem with that in churches, and I'm going to tell you what it is. The limitations of Christian freedom are rarely limited by the weaker brother in church. Rarely is it the, the, the brother who's you know, coming from an alcoholic background and so on who's, who's saying, hey, please don't drink around me. That would be too tough. Or you're just recognizing that's not a good thing. Rarely is that the issue. Here's what limits freedom in Christian churches. The legalist steps in, and the legalist says, I'm offended that you would do that. You're causing me to stumble. And that is an absolute misrepresentation of Romans chapter 14 and every other passage in the Bible talking about questionable issues. The legalist says they're offended. 
you're not hurting the legalist's faith at all. You're hurting their sensibilities about what's right and wrong. You're not causing them to stumble. You're not causing them to go back into some pattern of sin. They're just annoyed because they want a rule for everything, and they want to impose them on everybody else in Christendom. And a lot of us grew up in churches like that. So when they say they're offended, they don't mean what the Greek word means, scandalizomai. It's a scandal to their faith. You're really causing somebody to trip up and fall and sin. They just mean, I've got the rule book. I know what God wants for all of us, and you should be following it. That's not what this is about. They're not stumbling. You're not hurting their faith. You're challenging their three Bibles. That's what you're challenging. You're challenging their right to eliminate all matters of conscience and set the standard for everyone. That's not what it means to be offended. Again, I grew up in a movement full of those types of Christians. They wrecked churches. And frankly, they wrecked the attractiveness of church to the outside world. There was a Christian dress code, a facial hair code, rules about dancing, rules about movie theaters, rules about cards, rules about alcohol, rules about everything. We had our Bibles, and then we had our oral code, and it was just like the Pharisees. Our freedom does have limits but it should be limited only by when we're dragging somebody else down, not by the legalist. Number four, at the end of the day, a free conscience before Jesus should accompany all our choices. So I'm gonna just get to the the bottom line verse here on this. I have more I wanted to read, but we're running out of time. Paul says, verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. It's a very interesting principle that Paul is establishing here is whether something is right or wrong in these questionable areas. I'm talking about the 10% that's questionable, not the 90% that's clear. We're not talking about sexual ethics here. We're talking about the 10% that the Bible doesn't really clearly cover. All right? Where where we're in that 10% said the most important thing, if you're thinking of doing something, is can you do it with a sense of faith in your life. Because that what, that's what makes it right or wrong before God in your own heart. Is if you're thinking, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go you know, do such and such, and I know a lot of Christians disagree with that, but I'm, I'm gonna do it, and, and yet when you're doing it, you're thinking, oh man, I just don't feel right about this. Well, that's wrong for you as a general principle. That's what Paul is saying. If you get that twinge of conscience, in one of these questionable areas, this 10% of the scripture applications that aren't clear, if you've got a, you know, a twinge in your conscience, then it's not okay for you. Our ethical standards should all be, be biblical where it's clear, be accommodative to a truly weaker brother or sister if it's unclear, and then be accompanied by a clear conscience. Don't do things you don't feel comfortable with. My choices shouldn't be based on what's okay for you, My choices should be based on what's okay for me in light of my master, Jesus. And again, this is the 10% of Christian living that is unclear. Most of life is clear. You know, one of the things that became very popular in the last decade or so was the whole, what would Jesus do move? You know, get their bracelet, WWJD, which means everyone's going to obviously know, what would Jesus do? And I actually never really liked that. That sounds, like, that sounds like something a pastor should never say, right? What would Jesus do? Here's why I never liked it. Do you think you really know what Jesus would do? 
I didn't expect Jesus to clear the temple with a whip, did you? I don't know what Jesus would do in a lot of situations. I think that's the wrong question. I think here's the right question as it relates to this. What am I comfortable doing in Jesus' presence? What am I actually comfortable doing in Jesus' presence? Do I really have confidence that something is okay if Jesus is sitting right next to me? That's what Paul's talking about. Where's my conscience? Consciences, even redeemed ones, are always going to differ. Eric Schlosser's book and then movie Fast Food Nation exposed the dark side of the fast food industry, which is really sad because I love the fast food industry. And the, and the, the free refills on pop, I, I just love that. Good stewardship. At one point, Schlosser described a food production plant that runs 24 hours a day, 310 days a year, turning potatoes into french fries. Conveyor belts took the wet, clean potatoes into a machine that blasted them with steam for 12 seconds, boiled the water under their skins, and exploded the skins off. Then the potatoes were pumped into a preheat tank and shot through a lamb water gun knife. They emerged as fries. Four video cameras scrutinized them from different angles looking for flaws. When a French fry with a blemish was detected, an optical sorting machine time sequenced a single burst of compressed air that knocked the bad fry off the production line and onto a separate conveyor belt, which carried it to a machine with tiny automated knives that precisely removed the blemish. And then the fry was returned to the main production line. Sprays of hot water blanched the fries. Gusts of hot air dried them, and 25,000 pounds of boiling oil fried them to a slight crisp. Thank God for McDonald's. Air cooled by compressed ammonia gas quickly froze them, and computerized sorter divided them into six-pound batches, and a device that spun like an out-of-control lazy Susan used centrifugal force to align the French fries all in a row, so they all pointed the same direction. They taste better that way. The fries were then sealed in brown bags, and then the bags were loaded by robots into cardboard boxes. The boxes were stacked by robots onto wooden pallets. The end goal, millions and millions of French fries that look and taste exactly the same. We like that kind of uniformity. Christians love that kind of uniformity. Make it all clear. Diversity of belief. I'm talking diversity of belief where God wants diversity of belief. There's a lot of diversity of belief in the Christian world that isn't intended to be diverse. We just want to ignore what God actually has said. I'm talking about diversity of belief where God isn't clear. That's hard for us. Some of us want to believe the exact same rules should apply to everyone. But the Bible makes it clear that there's part of our lifestyle and ethics that, that just aren't set in stone. And we're going to have some healthy tension. Disagreeing isn't going away. We had a worship steering committee meeting a couple of weeks ago, and it was very interesting because we had one of these things that we say we hold in healthy tension. Because even the songs we sing on a Sunday morning, behind the scenes, we're questioning, well, which one should we sing? Because you may not know this, but a couple of the major publishing houses for music into Christianity are a little whacked out. They're a little cultic. There's some really strange beliefs that go along with them to the point that a lot of Christians are saying we shouldn't be singing this stuff. We shouldn't be giving them money because when we sing them, we actually give a royalty to them. We probably should just abandon the top two or three major producers of Christian contemporary music. And so in the committee, we're having this healthy debate. There's a healthy tension. Disagreement isn't going away, and that's a legitimate discussion. So what do we do? Just want to close with a couple apps here. Advice for the sensitive conscience. Do obey your conscience. 
Never do something that you don't feel like you can do with faith. Do remember who you serve. It's God. It doesn't matter what everyone else believes in a certain area that the Bible isn't clear about. You serve God. Don't use your sensitivity to, to try to control the people who disagree with you. Advice for the strong conscience. Do enjoy your freedom. You probably have a conscience well-developed by the Word of God. A mature conscience. Do remember that you're not alone in the body, however, and you do need to limit your freedoms for others. And don't assume your freedom makes you better. Advice for the libertine. Do know that grace never eliminated the, the, the reasons to obey the rules. Paul says in Romans chapter, you know, 5 and 6, it's like, hey, now that grace abounds, should we just go and sin? Sin all the more because God will forgive it? There's a lot of that going on in Christianity today. Know that grace never eliminated the need to obey the rules. In the New Testament, these people were called antinomians, anti-against nomos, law, no law. They didn't believe in the law anymore, so they believed there was no rules. I can serve God with my spirit. I can let my body do whatever it wants. They had a lot of fun. Wasn't okay. It wasn't Christianity. The rules still apply. And do know that salvation is more than just getting to heaven. It's life transformation. And don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh, as Paul would say. And finally, advice for the legalist. Do accept the idea of gray. God does in certain areas. And don't try to control the body with views more conservative than God. Well, there's not a great way to wrap that one up. It's not a tearful invitation time, but I hope that's a good, heady exercise to kind of help you understand how the New Testament church dealt with controversial issues and how we probably should try to do that as well. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives. And in these areas, we know that there are things we all wonder about, whether they're okay or not, and we could probably list 15 or 20 of them that we would disagree about in this very room. And I just pray that where we have these differences, you would help us to put these principles to use in our lives, that we would recognize that above all, we serve a God, we want to have a clean conscience before that God, that we would recognize the differences between us and others, and that we would have a loving attitude towards everyone around us, that we would just recognize that your word is the final authority on things, but your word is not clear on everything, and that we would exercise grace in those areas. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.